All right, turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. If you're needing a Bible this morning, raise your hand. Um, I'm sure we've got some extras, and there's Carrie with the Bible. So raise your hand, and he can get you a Bible. And if you need to keep that Bible, keep it. Acts chapter 21, we are moving right along in the book of Acts after a nice little stop in chapter 20. We're moving along. Matter of fact, I, I imagine that the rest of the series will pick up pace quite a bit here just because of the nature of the remainder of the text of Acts. But today we're in Acts 21. We'll be reading the first 14 verses of Acts 21. And the Word of God says, And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went aboard, on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at, I'm sorry, I didn't practice this one, Ptolemaeus, sorry, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, we and the people then there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not our will, but yours, Lord. That's our prayer this morning. Not Deemer's will, but yours, Lord, as he stands to preach. Not our will, Lord, what we want to hear, but your will, what you want us to hear. That's our prayer. Lord, as we go out from this place today, may your will be done. No matter what the cost is to us, no matter what challenge you're laying before us. May the will of the Lord be done. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the tremendous testimony of the Apostle Paul. We thank you for Luke, who faithfully wrote down these details for us. 
And we pray now that you'd speak to us through this word that's inspired by your Holy Spirit. May we hear your word. May we respond appropriately. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn on the microphone. Are we good to go? All right. I think many of us have heard that, that phrase before, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's a common phrase. It's often used by preachers and, and people uh, sharing their faith with unbelievers. I think we have to be careful, though, about using that phrase for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, God doesn't have a wonderful plan for everybody. Anyone who dies without receiving the Lord Jesus is going to be under the wrath of God forever in hell. That's not a wonderful plan. That's a horrifying plan. But what about believers? Surely God has a wonderful plan for believers, doesn't he? And my my answer to that is, is yes, he does. The Bible is full of all kinds of wonderful and exciting promises for believers to put their hope in. One of my favorites is is Romans 8.28 about God working things together for our good. That's, That's a part of God's wonderful plan. That's something we should take comfort in or consider the promises at the end of the book of Revelation where you've got the new heavens and the new earth and you've just got these exciting images of this incredible world that we're going to inherit where there's no sin and no death and no, no sorrow and no sin. That's, that's wonderful. That's, a, that's part of God's wonderful, glorious plan for us. However, how do we square the statement, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, how do we square that with this? Put up this picture, Noah. If you can't see that or... If you're listening online, you got a picture of lions coming out of a pit in a coliseum in Rome about to devour some Christians. And you may not be able to see this. You could probably see the man standing there, but behind him it looks like there's some women and children huddled be- behind that man. If you know anything about, about church history, you know there were times during the Roman Empire where there was, there was great outbreaks of persecution and Christians were killed and they were... They, they suffered and they were thrown to the lions. And you can see underneath that, that, that picture, the caption, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. How do we square that with that? That's what I want to talk about today. How do we deal with that? You see, here's the thing. We don't have a major problem with suffering when that suffering is an outgrowth of our sin, when our suffering is a consequence of our personal sin. We expect negative consequences, and we expect pain, and we expect things to not necessarily go our way when we deviate from God's way. We we expect that. We're not shocked when there's a negative backlash when we sin. That's not the problem. Suffering and bad things happening to us when we sin, that's not the problem. The problem is when we do the right thing. When we live in obedience to God, when we do the things that God has called us to do, and the result is pain, the result is suffering, the result is injustice, what then? How do do we deal with that and process that 
can go ahead and take that picture down now, Noah. Thank you. I think two common ways we, we deal with it is, is A, if, if things go bad and start to fall apart in our lives, we begin to reevaluate things and we begin to wonder if the path that we're on is really God's path. Well, I thought this was what God was calling me to do. Everything's coming apart, so that automatically means that God didn't want me to do this in the first place, so I must have made a big mistake. So we need to, we need to change course. It's obvious God's not in this because everything's going wrong now. That's typically how many of us tend to think. Because if God were in things, it would be going a lot smoother right now, wouldn't it? God would be blessing me right now. So I guess this is not God's way, and I need to change course and find out what God really wants me to do. That's one way. Another way that people tend to deal with it is, well, if that's God's wonderful plan for my life, forget it. With friends like God, who needs any enemies? I'm done with God. I, 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 I quit. Nothing ever, nothing good comes from me trying to follow the Bible anyway. Forget the Bible. And I think there's a, there's a third way. There's a better way of dealing with this. And, and so I want to jump into our text today in Acts 21. But we're also going to look at some other scriptures as well to, um, to help us to figure out how to, how to think through this and deal with this. I hope that you'll walk away encouraged this morning. Especially if you are going through a time of suffering. You feel like you... You're, you're doing your best to obey the Lord. You've done some things that God has called you to do, and you feel like ever since I started doing the things that God's called me to do, it's been nothing but trouble ever since. And I hope that when we're done here, you'll walk away encouraged and strengthened and blessed. I'll leave that up to the Holy Spirit. I can't do that for you. By the time Acts chapter 20 is done, Paul has determined to, that he's got to depart now and go to Jerusalem. He's been in Ephesus for three years. He's had a successful ministry. There's been a lot of fruit from that ministry. And, uh, and at the end of chapter 20, there is this very tearful and painful goodbye as, as Paul is leaving and saying goodbye to the elders at the church of Ephesus. He's moving on, and these elders are just torn up that they're not going to see Paul's face again. So why would Paul go? I mean, if you've been paying close attention to the past couple of chapters here in Acts, it, things have been going relatively well. Now, it hadn't been perfect in Ephesus, but, but there had been so much things that were going on that were positive, so many more positives than negatives. He was evangelizing Jews and Gentiles. Churches were being planted. He was teaching the Word of God publicly for two years. He had a great relationship and sweet fellowship with these Ephesian elders. God was obviously in this and blessing Paul and the ministry, and he could have spent his whole life in that region doing ministry and, and not running out of things to do. So why did he leave all the success behind? Well, that question leads to my, my first observation here about this, this narrative, and, and that has to do with the will of the Holy Spirit. Paul's desire to go to Jerusalem was not something that he had concocted in his head. Paul began to experience this urgent drive to go to Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit was prompting him to go. We know this from Acts 19 and Acts 20. For example, in Acts 19, it says, After these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit, not in his own Spirit, in the Spirit, capital S, to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go on to Jerusalem, saying, and after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And then in Acts chapter 20, verse 22, Paul himself says, Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. 
That language is even stronger than in, in uh, chapter 19. That Greek word that Paul uses that is translated in some Bibles as constrained, that carries the idea of, uh, of binding or, or tying up. That, uh, it could really be translated as, I- I'm, I'm tied up by the Spirit to do this. Or even clearer, I'm bound by the Spirit to go. But the problem here is not just that the Spirit is telling him to go to Jerusalem. The problem is is that the Spirit is also telling him what's going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem. For example, again, Acts 20, 22 and 23. Listen to Paul. Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So imprisonment and affliction awaits Paul if he goes to Jerusalem. And this is corroborated by other believers as the Spirit is telling them that the same thing is going to happen. For example, and Steve just read it, you've got this prophet Agabus turning to Paul. And in the style of the Old Testament prophets using props and and acting things out, he takes this belt and he ties himself up, ties his hands and his feet, acting out the word of God and saying, Paul, this is your fate. This is going to happen to you. God loves you, Paul, and God's got a wonderful plan for your life, Paul. That wonderful plan includes imprisonment, Paul. That wonderful plan includes affliction, Paul. And you're going to be bound by your hands and feet, Paul. So go on down to Jerusalem, Paul, and embrace this wonderful plan that God has for you. I I want you to understand this, friends, and I want you to... I want you to get your head around this. I think that the narrative is clear when you read, when you combine Acts 19, 20, and 21. I think the narrative is clear that this is the Spirit's will that Paul goes to Jerusalem. Now, there are some interpretive challenges coming up here in Acts 21 with these believers who through the Spirit are urging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. I'll deal with that in a moment. But I'm absolutely convinced that Paul is following the Spirit's leading and the Holy Spirit's will for Paul is to go to a place where Paul will be afflicted. Paul will be in prison. Paul will be bound. And the Spirit is sending Paul there anyway. Now, are we really going to go here? Are we willing to embrace the notion that God might call you to do something hard? That God might call you to do something that is uncomfortable? That God might call you to do something that is painful? Could it ever be God's will to lead you? I'm talking about you personally. You into something like that? I'll let that question hang for a moment. So my first observation has to do with the will of the Spirit. My second observation on this narrative has to do with the wisdom of man. And I'm putting wisdom here in quotation marks. In this story, in Acts, Paul is constrained, compelled, urged, bound by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And Paul is committed to going. And what's the reaction of everyone that he encounters in Acts 21? Tears. Pleading, begging, don't go, Paul. Now, obviously, these people love Paul, so of course they don't want him to get hurt. That's good. That's commendable. There's nothing wrong with their concern that they have for this beloved friend and teacher. The, their problem is not their concern and affection for Paul. 
they have another problem. I'll get that to that in a moment. Let's, let, let's look at this in verse 4 of Acts 21. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So Paul meets these believers in Tyre, and apparently these believers agree with Paul that they are convinced that something bad's going to happen if he goes to Jerusalem. Paul already knows this. The Spirit's already told Paul this. These believers are saying the same thing. And thanks to the graphic prophecy of Agabus given at Philip's house a little later on in the text, these believers also know that the Holy Spirit is testifying that a very specific kind of trouble awaits Paul in Jerusalem. And the reaction of the believers in Philip's house is the exact same reaction of the believers in Tyre in verse 4. Skip down now to verse 10 of Acts 21. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. So these people are not just saying calmly, Paul, man, I don't think you should go down there. I don't think that's a good idea. No, they're weeping. They're crying. They're begging. I can envision them grabbing onto Paul's cloak as he's heading out the door. Don't go, Paul. Don't do this. Now, this story in Acts 21 is, is a difficult one for Bible interpreters, and you probably already caught why. I've established the fact that Luke makes it clear in Acts 19 and in Acts 20 that Paul is going to Jerusalem because he's bound by the Holy Spirit to do so. This is a spirit-led thing. Now, we go to Acts 21, you've got these believers in Tyre telling Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. It seems as if the Holy Spirit is telling Paul to go to Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit is telling other believers that Paul should not go to Jerusalem. So what's going on here? First of all, I think we can automatically dismiss the notion that God is inconsistent. Can we, can we all agree to do that? that God is, we, we can dismiss that notion that God is fickle and he says one thing to somebody else meaning one thing and he turns around and he contradicts himself to somebody else. God doesn't do that. He doesn't contradict himself. So if the Spirit is not contradicting himself through these believers entire, if the Spirit is consistent, then what's going on? Well, I think when you combine this story the situation in verse 4 with the believers in Tyre, when you combine that story with the story of Agabus at Philip's house, a little later on in the story, I think it becomes a little clearer to what's going on here. We are not told specifically in the text exactly what the Spirit revealed to the believers at Tyre. But we are told later on exactly what the Spirit tells Agabus. And what does the Spirit tell Agabus? Thus, does he, does he say, thus saith the Lord, Paul should not go to Jerusalem? Is that Agabus's message? No, that's not what Agabus says. Agabus' specific message has nothing to do with whether Paul should or shouldn't go to Jerusalem. What the Spirit thinks about that, I think, has already been established in Acts 19 and in Acts 20. Instead, Agabus' message simply gives further details on something that Paul already knows. Paul knows that trouble is coming. 
But the Spirit reveals to Agabus more details about what that trouble looks like. So again, the Spirit says nothing to Agabus about whether or not Paul should go. But after Agabus gives his message, what do the people do? They fill in the blanks themselves. They come to their own conclusions on how to respond to that word from the Lord based on their own wisdom. Acts 21.12 says, when we heard this, in other words, when they heard the word from Agabus, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. They were receiving true, infallible revelation from the Holy Spirit, but they were coming to a wrong interpretation and application of that word from God. And I believe that's exactly what's happening with the believers entire. God, through the Spirit, is giving them a, a revelation and a prophecy about what's going to happen to Paul. And then the believers entire, I think, are, gonna, are doing exactly what the believers in Philip's house are doing. They're filling in the blanks themselves and, and, and coming to conclusions themselves on how to respond to that word. It's got to be that way or else the Spirit would be contradicting himself. And we know that that's impossible. So these people in Acts 21 begin to fill in the blanks and use their own human wisdom to come to a conclusion. And their automatic conclusion is, this can't be God's will. That Paul go to Jerusalem. And I can just see Paul telling these people, no, 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 you don't understand. I am constrained by the Spirit himself to go. I am bound by the Holy Spirit to do this thing and to testify about Jesus in Jerusalem. But, but these people, because of the hardship and the pain and the suffering that is in store, they automatically come to the conclusion that this cannot be God's will because it's too hard. God loves you, Paul, and he has a wonderful plan for your life, and this can't be the plan. That's man's wisdom. It's too hard. It doesn't make sense. God must not be in that. And I think that we have a tendency to fall into the exact same error in our own lives. And this leads to the problem I have with just kind of just throwing out that phrase, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's true that God loves you, and I believe with all my heart that God has a mind-blowing plan for all of his people. That's not the problem. The problem is, we're Americans. We're seduced by the American dream. And we're seduced by our own selfish tendencies and our own fleshly desires. And so when we think about God's wonderful plan for our life, I'm afraid that our own fleshly tendencies and our own cultural biases skew the definition of wonderful plan, of what that might look like for us. Think about it. When we hear the phrase, God has a wonderful plan for your life, what do we tend to think of? We tend to think that God's plan for our life is comfort in this age. We tend to think of God's wonderful plan as meaning success in work, earning enough money to buy, well, certainly not a mansion. I'm not going to be like those prosperity preachers on TV. I'm not going to be as extreme as them. Not a mansion for sure, but certainly a decent home with enough room for all my kids and my dog and my TV. It means I'll be reasonably healthy. I mean, I'm not going to be 
you know, I'll, I'll get a cold every once in a while, maybe the flu. Again, I'm not like those, those guys on TV there. No, no, no. But I'll be reasonably healthy. It means I can enjoy a relatively safe and comfortable life, happily married, well-behaved kids, and certainly I and my spouse, we won't die young. God will fulfill all my dreams. After all, the Bible does say that God will give you desires of your heart. I think that's what we, many of us tend to think when we think of God's plan for our life. If you don't believe me, you just go to any Christian bookstore and you look at a lot of those books that are there. And those are the kind of messages that you will get. Many of us have this unspoken assumption beneath the surface. And, and we may not say this, but I think a lot of us here struggle with this. That we have this assumption that if we come to Christ and follow his ways, that we're going to be rewarded with a certain sanctified Christian spin on the American dream. That we will have a safe and comfortable life and that generally things will go our way. And we often tend to think in very simplistic terms. We have a tendency to think that if I obey God and if I walk with God, then my life won't be hard. If I disobey God, then things won't be easy. But in this age, often it's the opposite. You have Christians who even now love the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their strength and with all their mind and they are rotting in a prison cell as you're sitting here right now. And they're on death row in some third world country because they love Jesus. Because they're preaching the gospel. And you have millionaires who have no regard for this world or have no regard for God enjoying themselves and enjoying the pleasures of sin and you have dictators who seem to be getting away with every kind of evil imaginable and they seem fat and happy and quite comfortable with their life so the point is we don't want to use the level of immediate pain or the level of immediate comfort as a barometer as to whether something is the will of God or not and I think sometimes we do that I think probably many of us in this room have been guilty of thinking that way at one time or another, myself included. See, because when you look at Acts 19, Acts 20, Acts 21, we discover here that it is very, very possible for God's wonderful plan for your life to include pain, to include suffering, to include hardship, to include even persecution at the hands of the enemies of Christ. But you won't find that sort of thing talked about in your average Christian book today or at many Christian conferences or even in some churches for that matter. But you will find it talked about all over the Bible. Jesus tells his disciples, you will have trouble in this world. Peter wrote his epistle to, to Christians who were suffering big time. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, he doesn't say to them, well, obviously you're in sin and that's why you're suffering. That's not what he says to them. These people were suffering precisely because they were Christians and they were living for the Lord. Peter tells them in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter is telling these believers that this is normal. This is not an anomaly. But we in suburban America with all of our creature comforts are trained to think the exact opposite. We, we, we tend to think that suffering is the anomaly and, and, and creature comforts are the norm. Earthly comforts are the norm. And if we follow Jesus, we think the natural result will be more 
earthly comfort. And, and we are so fearful, I think, sometimes of losing our possessions and losing our lives. And we are so comfortable in, in our little safe suburban bubble that I'm concerned. I'm concerned that we are missing out on some big things that God wants to do individually in our lives and as a church collectively to glorify God and bless others because we are too scared and because we automatically dismiss anything that might cause us any pain or discomfort. We automatically dismiss it. I wonder if there's someone here in this room who is supposed to go on the foreign mission field, but you are resisting that notion because it's too hard. Because it might lead you to some discomfort, even physical harm. You dismiss it. I, that can't be God's will for me. I wonder if there's someone in this room who's supposed to quit their job and downsize, and make less money, so you can pour more of yourself into mission and into ministry, or maybe even into your family. I wonder if there's any husbands in this room who are supposed to do some hard things. Really step up to the plate. Lead their wives and children and be a godly servant leader in the home. Even though it's much easier and much more comfortable to come home, tune out the family, turn on the TV, surf the internet, or play video games. Who here is called to share their faith more, but you're afraid of the negative backlash that you're going to get? Who here is afraid to confess their porn addiction because it's, it's not comfortable? It's too hard. Anyone here need to be less selfish with their time, their money, their possessions because you know God is calling you to give more of these things to those in need, but you're afraid of giving those things up? And I wonder how many of us would discourage our kids from being missionaries for the gospel in an Islamic country because it's not safe. No, don't do that, son. You got to go to college. I got some dreams for you. I wonder. And if you feel guilty about any of those things, I'm not thinking about anybody specific in this room, okay? So if, you, if I was tacking off things on a list and you feel bad about that, that's the spirit and it ain't me. What's my point? My point is that the Christian life is not always comfortable and it's not always safe. So don't use comfort and safety as the measure of what is God's will for your life. Because contrary to what Creflo Dollar preaches on TV, you can follow the Lord and it can be really, really hard and it can be God's will and you can still lose your health, your wealth, and your life. The people in Acts 21 who are urging Paul not to go to, they're urging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. They felt like Paul probably would be wasting his life if he went on. Don't do this, Paul. Don't throw your life away. This is not safe. This can't be God's will. You had something good going on in Ephesus there. Why don't you just stick around here for the rest of your life? Why not just hang out here and enjoy that? How can this, how can it be glorifying to God for you to be sitting in a cell alone? You know, in our world, living for the Lord is seen as a life wasted. That's the wisdom of man. Contrast that now with the wisdom of Christ. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That brings me to my third thought. 
Don't waste your life. Seek the true treasure. Don't waste your life. Seek the true treasure. You see, the biggest struggle that all of us have, whether you are in the slums of Calcutta or whether you are in a wealthy Atlanta suburb, is what are we going to treasure the most? That's the big, that's the battleground in our heart every day. That's what I, when I wake up in the morning, that's the battleground. What am I going to treasure the most? And of course, if we are especially susceptible to this battle, I think, in suburban America, because so many treasures are dangled in front of us in this wealthy nation of ours. And when I talk about treasures, I'm not just talking about money. But that can and often is part of the package. I'm talking about treasuring the warm, safe, comfortable, typical American suburban lifestyle. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to have a nice home. I'm not saying that it's wrong to be wealthy. I'm not saying it's wrong to want safety and comfort. We all want those things. But what is wrong is to treasure those things above Jesus. And we often do. I often do. We give lip service to Jesus. We give lip service to the idea of sacrificing for Jesus and loving him above all things. But we really struggle here, don't we, guys? We really, really do. This is why we get angry with God when things don't go our way. This is why we abandon God when times of suffering comes. We close our Bibles. We physically or mentally abandon the church. Some of you may be here physically this morning, but your heart is cold towards God. And we sink into anger and depression and despair. Why? Because the things that we treasured the most, the things that we staked our lives and our well-being and our happiness on, are being taken away. I've seen it time and time again. you got two Christians who go through a time of suffering and loss and pain. Neither of them like it, and neither of them want it. Both of them struggle through it. Both of them may have a crisis of faith. But one of them eventually comes out of that valley out of the pit, and continues to pursue Christ. And the other just stays there, forever stuck. Why is that? Is one person better than the other? No, I don't think so. That's not, that's not what it is at all. I think the main difference is that one person comes to the point where they remember that though they may have suffered great hardship and loss in many areas, they still have Christ. And he is more than enough. He is the highest and ultimate treasure and as long as I have him, I have the very best thing that anyone could have. And my life is not bound up in those other things. It's bound up in Christ. One person realizes that. The other person doesn't. That's the main difference. Think of Horatio Spafford. Who in 1870 lost his only son to scarlet fever. 1871, he incurred financial ruin because of the great Chicago fire. 1873, he lost all four of his daughters in a horrifying shipwreck. Hammer blow after hammer blow after hammer blow on his life. Most of you know his story, but in the wake of those terrible tragedies, Horatio wrote the great hymn, It is well with my soul. He said, when peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, 
thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Did Horatio Spafford like suffering? No. Did he want to lose his money and his business? No. Did he want to lose his son? No. Did he want to lose his daughters? No. I guarantee you, did that hurt? Yes, it hurt a lot. And many men would be forever crushed by such a circumstance. Yet Spafford, though hurt, though wounded, though scarred, was not ultimately crushed. He didn't say, well, if that's your wonderful plan for my life, God, then forget it. I'm out of here. Which is what so many of us do. No. Instead, he remembered that he had something more precious than his money. And he had something even more precious than the the son and the daughters he loved so much. He had Christ. And he counted Christ as the superior treasure. And having that treasure brought him through the pain of losing all the other lesser treasures that he had. Scripture says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Part of the answer to the problem of suffering for a Christian is not to bury our head in the sand and act like it doesn't happen or that would never happen to us or that it only happens to Christians who sin. Part of the answer, I think, is that we need to beg God to enlarge our hearts for Jesus, to increase our love for Christ, to be so consumed and passionate for Him that we can endure anything that he may call us to do if only we still have Christ and we can exalt his name among the nations. If I can just have that. That was Paul's mindset. And at the end of our story in Acts 21, you've got people begging Paul and pleading with him not to go, don't waste your life, Paul, stay here. And look how Paul answers in verse 13. Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart for I am ready not only to be in prison but even to die in Jerusalem for nothing no for the name of the Lord Jesus I think about what Paul said in Acts 20 Verses 22 through 24, he says, Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what's going to happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Wow. Paul did not count his own life as precious. There was something that he treasured far more than his earthly comfort and convenience. And what he treasured above all else was exalting the name of the Lord Jesus through testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. And whatever could draw attention to Jesus and to the gospel of Jesus was of maximum importance to Paul. Paul's response to the Holy Spirit's message of affliction was not, well, this must not be God's plan for me because it hurts. And it was not, well, if this is God's path for me, then forget it, I'm done with Christ. Instead, his response was, my life is not about me. My life is not about my life. My life is centered on and consumed by a passion to exalt Christ. If I do not exalt Christ, then my life is wasted. But if I do exalt Christ, there is great gain. Paul says in Philippians 1, It is my eager expectation and hope 
that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You want to glorify God with your life? And we all say yes, and we give lip service to that. Well, here's Here's the way we ultimately exalt Christ. Two ways, according to Paul here in Philippians. One way is to live is Christ. That means your whole life revolves around Jesus Christ. It doesn't revolve around your stuff. It doesn't even revolve around your family, as good as as important as your family is. Jesus Christ is to be the blazing center of our lives so much That if we did lose our house, and if we did lose our family, like Horatio Spafford, we would still feel like the richest and most blessed person in the world because we have Christ. But it's not just that. Paul doesn't just say to live is Christ. He also says to die is gain. Now when we get to the point where we see our death as gain... That's a signal that God is getting our heart where it needs to be. Now, how can death be gain? If Christ is the highest and supreme treasure in our lives, if he is the source of ultimate satisfaction and joy, then what happens when we die? When we die, we get more of that. We get to experience Christ to an even greater degree because we won't have sin holding us back. We won't have the devil holding us back. We won't have the world tugging at our hearts. We get, we'll get Jesus, pure, unfiltered, unadulterated Jesus. And if that's the case, then death is not loss. Death is great gain. Think about the great Christian heroes of the faith that you might admire the most. The ones you want to be the most like, heroes of the faith. I know sometimes at our house we read about missionaries, missionary biographies. I would highly recommend you do that with your kids. Read about these great missionaries of the past, ministers of the past. So encouraging and and inspiring. But what is the common thread that runs through the stories of the saints that we admire the most? The common thread is that they love Jesus more than their health and more than their wealth more than being comfortable, and even more than their very lives. You think about the great missionaries and ministers of our past, whether that be Gladys Aylward in China, uh, or George Mueller in England, or one of my favorites, Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott, who in the 50s just had this burning passion and desire to go to Ecuador to preach to the, the Indians there. And you, and, and, you know, and, and you know who was his greatest opposition to that? The church was. Believers were. People urged Jim not to go to Ecuador to preach to these Indians. Don't go, Jim. Don't waste your life, Jim. Those are savages and they're going to kill you, Jim. You're gifted, Jim. You're talented, Jim. Stay here. You can do so much for the church here in America, Jim. Use your gifts and talents here. We need you. And what was Jim's response? Listen to what Jim Elliott wrote. He said, surely those who know the great passionate heart of Jehovah must deny their own loves to share in the statement of his. Consider the call from the throne above. Go ye and from round about. Come over and help us. 
and even the call from the damned souls below. Send Lazarus to my brothers that they come not to this place. Impelled then by these voices, I dare not stay home while the Kichwas perish. So what if the well-fed church in the homeland needs stirring? They have the scriptures, Moses and the prophets, and a whole lot more. Their condemnation is written on their bank books and in the dust on their Bible covers. American believers have sold their lives to the service of mammon, and God has right, rightful way of dealing with those who succumb to the spirit of Laodicea. Wow. <laughs> wow. Jim Elliot considered Christ and the spread of his name of such value that it drove him to Ecuador, and spears were thrust through his body by the Alka Indians. Did Jim waste his life? Earlier in his life, Jim wrote this. God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life, and may I burn for thee. Consume my life, God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. Oh, may God give us a heart that would say that and really mean it. Wow. Elsewhere, Jim Elliott wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. My favorite quote from him. Friends, we got to pray that God gives us this kind of heart. We can't fake this. I mean, we might say amen to it, but we can't fake it. We need God's supernatural help to, make, to help us to love him that much. We talk about great heroes of the faith and we admire them. And we talk about how much we would love to be like them. But we will never be like them if Christ is not the supreme treasure and love of our life. Instead, we will have a comfortable, safe, pleasant, boring, dull, dry, wasteful life. One thing we need to remember is that we humans, in our weak fallible and perfect wisdom we are the least qualified to judge what is good and what is a waste jim elliott's sacrifice was not a tragedy it was god exalting and even though elliott died in 1956 the ripple effects of his death are still being felt all over the world today through his death countless of people countless people including many of those savages came to jesus christ through his death, countless young people and old people have been inspired to not waste their lives chasing the American dream, but rather to, like Paul, pour out their lives like a drink offering and commit themselves to foreign missions to spread the name and the fame of Jesus Christ to the unreached peoples of the world. They told Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. You could end up killed. You could end up rotting in a prison. What good will it be for you to end up in jail? What a waste. What good for the kingdom of God, could you possibly do while you're in prison, Paul? Hmm. Let me think about that for a second. Not much good, I guess. He just wrote a few little books. Maybe you've heard of some of them. Colossians, Philemon, Philippians, 2 Timothy. Now, he didn't do much good in that prison cell, did he? We don't know, guys. <laughs> we haven't a clue. We haven't a clue. It's another thing we need to remember. 
those of us who suffer for Christ and we still cling to God, we honor and glorify God through that in a special way when we are willing to endure and forsake all for Jesus, when, when we're willing to do that, we say something to the world about the value of Jesus, don't we? But if we hold on to, to these other things and we're unwilling to let them go for Christ, we send out another message to the world about the value of Christ. And too many churches and too many Christians send that wrong message, myself included. Jesus promises difficulty, but he also promises his power and his presence and his strength in the midst of that difficulty. Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Paul says in Philippians, he learned the secret to being content in all situations, and that secret was that in, in, he learned that in Christ he can do all things through Christ who gives him strength. And here's another thing that we need to remember. Jesus not only said, in this world you'll have trouble. He didn't stop there. He said, in this world you'll have trouble. But right after that, he said, but take heart. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Put up that other slide, Noah, if you will. Take heart. I have overcome the world. There it is, the empty tomb. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Leave it up there, Noah, for now. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. What is his wonderful plan? Paul tells you, Romans 8, 28, 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. A huge part of God's wonderful plan for your life is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. If that's not a wonderful plan, I don't know what is. Because I don't know about you, but I am sick of me and I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like my Lord. I'm sick of sin. I'm sick of my imperfections. I'm sick of messing up. I'm sick of not loving people enough. I want to be like him. And that conformity to Christ does not begin in the next age. It begins the moment you were born again. God is working in your life, the scripture says, and he's working all things together in your life. All things, whether it be pleasant things or unpleasant things whether it be comfortable things or persecution. He's using all of these things that are coming your way in your life, and he's working them together for your good, which is ultimately Christ-likeness. And if you want to be like Christ, and we all do, if you want to be like Christ, you not only have to serve the Father, you not only have to live a godly life, but you also have to suffer. If Christ's path took him through obedience, suffering, death, resurrection, glorification, you should expect that that's going to be your path too. Now God does not call us all to obey in the same way. We're not all meant to be foreign missionaries. We're not all meant to be businessmen. We're not all called to be parents. But we all are called to live a life of obedience to the Father in the same way Jesus was. We are not all called to suffer in the same way. We're not all called to suffer martyrdom. 
but we, we all should expect trouble and opposition and difficulty in this world in the same way that Jesus did. Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you too. But according to Romans 8, we are not only called to obedience and suffering, we also, if Jesus tarries, we will also go through the valley of the shadow of death just like Jesus did. But guess what? There is one significant way that Jesus is different than us. Jesus never sinned. Jesus was perfectly just and righteous and holy. He, did not, he died not because he deserved it. He died, as the scriptures tell us, to taste death for everyone. He died not for himself and for his own sins. He died for your sins. He tasted the death that you deserved. And because he is the sinless son of God, death could not hold him. Hebrews says, the book of Hebrews says that after making purification for sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now outside of Christ, we have every reason to fear death because death means judgment. Death means wrath. Death means hell forever. But for those of us who are in Christ, Christ has absorbed the judgment and the wrath and the hell we deserve so we don't have to face it, which means that for us, we will walk the path that Jesus walked. That path through the valley of the shadow of death, through the grave, through the tomb, only to be brought out safely to the other side and to glorification. That's our destiny. The reason why death is gained for the believer is because of what Christ did on the cross and through his resurrection on our behalf. <clears throat> I'm almost done. To die is gain. And Paul knew that. And he believed it so much that that is what led him to do big, bold, crazy, God-exalting things. He knew that something better was coming. He knew that despite trouble and pain and difficulty, God has promised his people things that are so wonderful and incredible that it makes the difficult things we go through now seem rather light in comparison. That's exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. Listen to this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. When Jesus calls us to do hard things, he's not asking us to do anything different than what he's already done. You have felt pain, so has Jesus, more than you, more than me. You have felt rejection, so has Jesus. You've lost loved ones dear to you, so has Jesus. You've been persecuted, so has Jesus. And the thing that kept Jesus going was the same thing that kept Paul going. Something that was coming in the future. Paul said to die is gain. Listen to what it says about Jesus in Hebrews 12. Author of Hebrews 12 urges us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was it there that kept Jesus going? 
Jesus kept going, kept persevering, kept enduring for the joy that was set before him. He looked past the suffering, he looked past the shame, he looked past the torment of the cross because he knew something just beyond that, just right around the corner, something beyond that was coming his way. Something so good and so precious and so amazing that it made it all more than worth it. Earlier in the book of Acts, it talks about Paul going around to different churches and encouraging them. And his word of encouragement is very interesting. He encouraged them by telling them that you must go through many tribulations before entering the kingdom of God. Now, now I don't understand why that would be an encouragement. <laughs> After I thought about it for a while, I did understand why it would be an encouragement. Because what Paul was telling these folks was that, listen, what you're going through the tribulation and the affliction and the pain, that doesn't mean that God is not with you. That doesn't mean that, that you don't belong to God. That doesn't mean that you've done something wrong. This is life in this world. There is affliction and there is tribulation. But once you go through that, there is glory. And that was the source of encouragement that Paul had for these churches. <clears throat> I am glad that Jesus did not gauge the will of the Lord based on how painful something was. He faced that choice in the garden, didn't he? Jesus wasn't excited to go to the cross. He didn't want to go to the cross. He prayed to his Father that if there be another way, let this cup pass from me. But then in the end, he said, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus moved forward, and he suffered. And it was the will of the Lord that he suffered greatly and the whole world was saved and what that means for you Christian is that to live is Christ to die is gain let's pray together Father <clears throat> I pray that not my purpose but your purpose be spoken to the hearts of everyone in this room right now. I pray for those who are going through great difficulty in the midst of obedience to you. And I don't know what that is, but there may be folks in here who have done things that God has called them to do, who are living for the Lord, and yet it seems like there's just negative backlash uh, for that, and that things are just getting worse, and that there, there's suffering that came about as a result of obedience, and, and there's this temptation to think, man, I, sh I should have never done this. Things would have been so much easier if I just didn't obey the Lord in this area. And maybe it wasn't the Lord in the first place. Father, encourage them. Encourage them. Father, remind them that it is through many tribulations that we must go, go through to enter into the kingdom of God. Father, remind us that you are with us always, even to the end of the age. Remind us that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Remind us that you are taking all things and you are working them together for the good of those who love you. And Father, I pray that you would give us such a passion for you, such a love for you, that it would drive us to do things that the world would think is idiotic and foolish and crazy, but it's God-exalting. Enlarge our love 
for you, God. May you be our highest and our supreme treasure. Help us with that. And encourage all those here who are going through suffering as a result not of sin, but because they're following you. Help us with that. And help us to be of good cheer, as Jesus said, because you have overcome the world. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is uh, Mark chapter 15, and it's just a story on the crucifixion. I thought it'd be good to read that before we entered in our closing song. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now before the, from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema shabthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. <clears throat> there were also women looking on from a distance. Among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. <laughs> and this is the word of the Lord. Mm -hmm.
stand and worship the Lord. To see my name written in the wounds, for through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death, life is mine to live, one through yourself this the power of the cross in Christ became sin for us and took the blame and bore the wrath we stand forgiven at the cross Sing that again. This the power of the cross in Christ became sin for us. Took the blame and 
Maybe seated. Just a couple of quick um, announcements. Um, and before that, just praise God for His Word this morning uh, preached. Thank you, Deemer, for being a faithful servant of His. And um, um, unless you've preached, and some of you in here have, you don't know the internal struggle that goes on before you get in the pulpit. <laughs> and so. Um, uh, I was the only one that was let into that room this morning with Deemer, uh, that internal struggle, and not feeling sure about what he was to speak. Praise God that it's not up to us, and it's the Spirit of God that moves, and and the Spirit of God used you powerfully this morning. And praise God for your faithfulness. Um, man, I shouldn't cry at announcement time. What's wrong with me? I'm not Mark. <laughs> All right. Um, we're going to keep studying the Bible this morning. Um, the children downstairs, um, and then also downstairs, Deemer's class. Uh, and then for those of you who have signed up for the One True God, which is a 14-week study um, on the doctrine of God, that's going to be in here. We're going to do that right here um, to make it easier for... Um, a lot of those who've signed up for that class, those those stairs we have are, are pain, you know. Uh, so we're going to have that class right here. So please, if even if you haven't signed up for either that class or Deemer's class, go to a class because um, the Word of God is where the power is, and that's where you, you need to be hooked in. Um, we're going to be starting a Bible study for our young adults, um, I believe, at the end of the month. We'll get the details out to you exactly what date, but probably... The last Wednesday of each month, we're going to be doing that. And Carrie's shaking his head, and if I'm wrong, then he'll correct me later. Um, and uh, But this Friday night, we're having a young adult movie night uh, here. So if you want more information about that, you can get with um, Warren or Monica. Um, let me draw your attention also to a conference we're going to have here at the very end of the month, March 30th uh, and 31st. Um, it's going to be a, a, really a a conference to help all of us apply the scriptures to human suffering. I mean, it ties in directly with what we talked about uh, today because this isn't uh, an easy road being a believer, and we need gospel answers for that. And so we're going to be having that at the end of the month. Um, there's some other announcements here on your, um, on your bulletin. And uh, that I would just ask you to look at uh, one of those. I'll just draw one more attention to one more, which is the life song for orphans. The information is still on our bulletin board thingy back there. And so far, we only have one orphan supported. And in light of today's message, <laughs> I just. How much suffering will it cause us to drink a few less lattes each month and take that money and put it directly towards one of these orphans, even if you only have 10 extra dollars to give. We've already said that we want families combining their funds to support some of these orphans as well. So please ask the Lord what he's asking you to participate in, even if it means suffering a little bit uh, financially as well. So let me close this with prayer, and then we'll head out to our Bible studies. Father, we praise your name 
for your word. We praise you for the son. As we heard, as Mark 15 was read, the tremendous suffering that he endured for the sake of each one of us. And that he was able to endure that because he looked forward to the joy of sitting at the right hand, at your right hand, Father. And so, God, I pray that you'd give us the strength and resolve, even when it's not easy, even if it involves ridicule or scorn, even if it involves taking our families to the remotest parts of this planet. Lord, may we do whatever you're calling us to do. May the will of the Lord be done. May the will of the Lord be done. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.